Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This week I'm joined by Lily Dunn. I'm very excited to have Lily here. Lily is the author of Sins of My Father, which is a forthcoming memoir. And Lily describes it as a literary memoir. And it certainly is that. It's um, very exciting and it's out on WNN next month. So Lily, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's fine. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I know that we've spoken before quite extensively about memoir. So that was the plan today that we would just basically chat about the difficulties of memoir, the joys of memoir, the power of memoir, also talk about cults and the kind of very grey areas of memoir as well, the sort of more ethical wranglings that you go through when you're writing about your life, which obviously means that inevitably you are also writing about other people's lives. So yeah. you describe your memoir as a literary memoir, which I'm very interested in. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I think it's more to try and establish itself in a world where memoir, I think particularly in this country, we've been a little bit slow in sort of catching up with the fact that, that memoir, well, literary memoir, memoir, which is, is sort of pushing the bounds of its own form is becoming more and more popular. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's not just simply about the subject, it's not just simply a misery memoir or a celebrity memoir about somebody's life. It's, it's actually using that life as, as, a, as evidence for something greater. So um, exploring, you know, topical themes or worldly themes or universal themes through the personal. So I suppose that's what I mean by literary memoir. I also mean um i mean i'm i'm a i'm a trained fiction writer i suppose like most writers you know you you, you don't necessarily go in to do a m well i know that's more so now people can do ma's in creative non-fiction but certainly when i was doing an ma um that wasn't really on the table um so i did a an ma in in writing the novel and and you know it was always my aspiration was to be a novelist because that's sort of how we grow up isn't it is reading mm. novels and immersing ourselves in that world um but actually as i sort of progressed as a writer i've realized that non-fiction is more it's a, a, a place that i feel comfortable in but i've applied what i learned as a novelist to my non-fiction so i would also say that that enables you to have your mind on technique and mm -hmm. on form and on the on on creative nonfiction on on creating an aesthetic on creating something that's beautiful as well as you know sp using the springboard of your life um mm. so yeah i mean that's that i suppose that's my definition to a certain degree of, of what what i mean by that I love that definition. I think it's so important that you can bring all these storytelling skills from one genre and kind of bring it into this different discipline, which is very much in this country being explored. I think there's this huge um, kind of sudden interest in memoir and not just for the stories that are being told, but the way the stories are being told as well and the different narrative techniques that people are using and bringing yeah. to the page, which is very exciting. I know we were at an event last week um, where David Whitehouse read from his book 
and he used second person to incredible effects to really kind of bring the reader into this story and then go into the further past and and you know that's a very literary technique it's a deliberate device mm. um, that's being used and is on the page to kind of bring people in and 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 tell these really important stories but like you say widen them out to the world as well yeah and i think it's also acknowledging and honoring the imagination so david whitehouse's book is a brilliant example of that um, about his son where he his way of of getting into the life of the the father of of the of the of the young man who was was murdered um just a complete random uh, knife attack in Nuneaton, which was as uh, David Whitehouse's hometown. Um, and he compiled this book, he, he put this book together through this father's diaries. Mm -hmm. But David Whitehouse's way of, of empathizing deeply and getting into the, the, the mind of this man who has lost his son is by writing it in that second person. So it, it's like the form itself enables you to enter into the story with your imagination in as deep a way as you can and of course that will then translate for the for the reader mm -hmm. because if you're doing that as a writer then the reader is immersed in that story as well and it's so much more effective than just simply that kind of chronological you know this happened on this day in 1965 mm -hmm. and then so and so and then bloody blah got upset by it and you know which is dull so i think you know there's well, we're always pushing the bounds of what we can do as writers. I think that's the point of being creative. It's the point of being an artist, you know, um, not not to sound pretentious, pretentious, but but, you know, why there are writers who will just simply transcribe. And that's different from what we're trying to do, mm. I think, which, which is which is create something that is going to be moving and also move the form or move the genre in surprising directions and I think that's what makes writing mm. exciting and I think if the writing's exciting then the reading is exciting as well so it it yeah. kind of it benefits everybody it isn't just about you know I want to push the bounds of my own form and having something to talk about when you're being interviewed or kind of feeling that you're doing something that's on a slightly esoteric level it's mm. really kind of keeping the reader at the heart of the process and realizing that they're going to benefit they're getting something that's a lot more exciting as a result as well that there's kind of these really fresh interesting things going on that isn't like you say just a simple transcribing mm. um, when i was writing my memoir i was very conscious that past tense can be really tedious because there can be that well why am i being told something that happened 30 years ago and mm. that was what was behind my um decision to make it first person present tense so that the reader mm. kind of grows alongside you um but also there's that scope to see something um very strange from a from a different perspective um and there's a child's voice which is very clear and i think a child i love writing children because i think that you can explore so much through children but you explore this um really touching scene in your book where your father's dead but you're sort of you're imagining him being alive again and you're alone but he's there but it isn't presented as imagination either so you you blur the kind of um distinction between the real and the imagined too which i absolutely love and you do it so elegantly as well 
Thank you. I think also that's to do with memory, isn't it? And this is something I, I encourage my students to do is, is really, really enter into the memory. So it's not, it's not so much thinking, oh, what exactly happened and getting all caught up in the an, an analytical mind of kind of oh, what were the details of that thing? And, and what can I, what can I conjure, you know, sort of intellectually, it's actually entering into the memory from an emotional perspective. And so when you enter into a memory, like you really sit with it, which of course is, is tricky and can be quite difficult, particularly if you're writing about traumatic experience, you know, it takes a lot of bravery and it takes practice as well to be able to protect yourself at the same time. But when you enter into a memory in its real form, what comes is not the literal, it's not, it's not actually what happened, it's, it's the emotional of what that memory conjures in you and what it means to you and so I, I know exactly the passage that you're you're talking about and and I I wrote that because I kept on returning to this image of my father dead in his Airbnb on his own which I didn't see I didn't witness but it was so awful that it it just I had to live with it I had to mm. honor that memory because no one was there to witness it so I it just was mm. in me and and I actually returned to a, a supposed BNB. It wasn't the one where he died, but it was one in, in the location. It was one where he stayed when he was a derelict in his last years, his, his last year of his life. Um, and so I sort of I kind of patched that that incident together through what I was able to grasp at. And and so yes, yeah, I suppose also, you know, the narrative of somebody else's life becomes a kind of conversation that you have with them well it's with the memory of them it's with mm. what you know of them but also what they mean to you so i think that that even though it's not the truth it's it's a truth that that has a, a personal emotional truth mm -hmm. that that is about your relationship with that person and i think i think that is also yeah, I guess I don't know whether that's a skill that you can consciously develop. Maybe you can, or maybe it's just part of the process of writing a memoir and living with somebody else's life or living with a particular point of your life that you mm. you 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 kind of create this third thing, which is your relationship to that life or that your relationship to that content. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's a very strange thing that you kind of create this you're constantly um striving for the truth because that's the that's the con the constraint that you're working within that you've kind of made this dedication that you'll tell the truth but what the truth consists of or how you get to the truth is a very lengthy and very complicated process and you're right you do make this kind of third construction as well as the book the book almost becomes the fourth thing but you have to make this other thing. And so when I was writing the book, I was doing like you say, that you enter into these memories. I was going into these memories and it felt very, very like going into an actual place in, in my mind. And I would walk around it and see the past very, very vividly. And really on a kind of visceral level, I could see it, I could smell it. I was unsure if I was actually still existed in the present. A very strange period where I wouldn't really look in the mirror or I wouldn't feel like hunger. I wouldn't feel kind of now sensations. I was very much off then. Mm. Um, 
And the more I tried to kind of get to this truth, the more my idea of what the truth was shifted as well so that it wasn't just that it was the truth of the past which is one thing but I realized that what I was trying to work out was the truth of a very complicated relationship between me and my mother and trying to work out her very much and I didn't realize that that's what the book was until till very close to the end actually till very close to like many drafts in and I think that that really exposes a kind of fundamental aspect of what the truth is made of is that it is it's these many layers it's a thing to walk around it isn't an absolute thing and from it we can construct new things and and new meanings and almost new ways of being I don't know how it was for you but I know that writing a memoir was a hugely transformative process that I began to think differently, not just to feel different, but I certainly came out of the book much changed than I had been at the beginning of it. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I, I think I, I did as well. And um, <clears throat> I do think there's a, there's a huge uh, potential for healing um, difficult difficulties in our lives through committing to write about them I think what you describe is, you know, quite frightening, actually, to some, you know, that you had to enter into it, you know, painful memories and, and a, a, a difficult past, which, of course, is the reason why you're writing about it in the first place is that you you need to try and work this out. It's something that lives in you. And um, and so you return to these these points because they don't it's like they get their claws into you. They won't leave you. And. So you're committing to entering into that to such a degree that you that it's that yeah as you as you describe so eloquently that you're actually the the blur there's a blurring between that world of the, of your past and the world now which is really frightening you know that can be frightening to people and and you know that that fear that actually you lose your grasp on reality. Um, and it is really powerful. But what I how I how I see it now coming out the other side, and I hope and I'm sure you do as well, is that that it's a little bit like therapy, isn't it? That that in itself is transformative if you allow it to be. So it's it's like we have to go into that place in order to realize it to the degree that we can then commit it to the page. And through that process mm -hmm. of committing to the page or externalizing it, we create something new. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in creating something new, we're able to stand apart from it because it's actually not what we lived. It's something it's something gener generative mm -hmm. that we have created from what we lived. And and I think that in itself is really healing. I think that that enables us. I, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And it certainly enabled me to see the story and see the narrative. And also it it's also tied in with research and this is why research was important in my book um, that the more you research around a subject that has affected you the more you realize that it's affected many many people that mm -hmm. it's not you know that this is part of the human condition and and of course in that it, it depersonalizes it doesn't it it takes away the sting of the personal Absolutely. I think that you nailed that so perfectly that it becomes, so the more I researched um, the organisation that my mum was part of, the less I 
blamed her. So when I went into writing the book, I was very raw and very angry with her and towards her. And writing felt like a way of reclaiming my voice and of stating my case and my way of seeing it. And it would have been an awful book if it was just about how I saw it. It would have been declarative and it would have been shouty. It had to be something that was about seeing the forces that were acting on her and seeing her need, like you say, the very humanness of it. And so that period of research and of of coming to understand what I'd been part of and what she'd been trapped by and the mechanisms at play and the very powerful and clever mechanisms that were used, the more I could realize and walk around it from many, many perspectives. So I began to see the process of there's a, I think he's called Maurizio Catalan. He's an artist and he's very famous for doing this horse, which is like a stuffed a taxidermied horse, huge horse that hangs from the ceiling. And it's a hugely powerful piece because the horse is above the viewer and changes in relation to where you are in the room as well. And I began to visualize that when I sat down to write that there wasn't a single perspective to this story. There wasn't my perspective. There wasn't my mom's perspective. There were many, many ways of viewing this and as many infinite ways of telling it, which is what can make it really hard to write it down. But that, yeah, there are all these things that inform what can on the surface seem like a very simple event, but you have to go into the past and further in and further in. And you realize that we're all just kind of products of what's happened before and before and before and before. And you do that so well in your book when you're looking at your father so compassionately, this very difficult man, but you're trying to work him out. Um, and I suppose, like you say, it's the research, it's contextualizing that that really helps you kind of understand your story on a different level. Yeah. And also, you know, loving the person and, you know, these are our family members. And of course, we have a choice. And this was this was a question I started my memoir with was, you know, do you turn your back on them? Do you walk away and just get on with your life? Because it's it's too difficult to to keep on going back and trying to unravel or unpick something that's that's so sort of ineffable um or do you do you attempt to to work it out and of course as writers you know I, I don't know that we have a choice I think that's just part of what we're made of and it it makes our lives more complex but I think it also makes us more empathetic and more mm. um able to 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 live our life with an open mind, actually, and I, I do see that reflected in in daily life. I, you know, I, I some particularly as a mother. I don't know if you get this, Ali, but I've had a certain certain kind of confrontations with with mothers, other mothers of of my my friends' children who just sort of get stuck on on the minutiae of something and and on blame and and on you know and and they're in the complex of their protectiveness of their child, you know, mm. which of course we all understand and we've all experienced, but to the point that they cannot see outside of their need to protect their child mm. who has felt threatened by something. And I, I find it so hard to have conversations with people like that, who, who cannot quite see beyond that abuse or that, that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, 
that argument or, or whatever has happened to their child. And I think it's become so ingrained in me as a as a writer and particularly a writer of of biography stroke memoir, you know, which is kind of what I've done with my my book about my dad to try and see outside of those cliches, you know, mm -hmm. outside of outside of the obvious point of blame, um, because that's what creates story it, mm -hmm. it, it, and it's, it's what connects with with the outside world, you know, it's yeah so i guess that that's another another sort of side of literary memoirs is that it has that potential to kind of step outside of itself outside mm -hmm. of of its straight narrative i think it's a really important um vantage point as a writer in general to not be able to um kind of settle on either side or not settle on on a single definition or a single point of being to be able to see something from outside so that you're almost constantly seeing it as an observer and i think that that at times can actually be one of the failings of memoir which i think we've both are very conscious of in our own work is that although there's an eye on the page the the person who's writing that you have to I don't know how to say this without sounding really like like pretentious but you almost have to transcend yourself so that you're not seeing it like i was saying about the horse you're not seeing it from your position it might look like you're seeing it from your position but to get to the kind of vantage point that you're at on the page has required seeing it from so many different aspects and seeing so many different ways in and seeing all the different perspectives and you're right when it comes to real life it can be very hard when there's kind of didactic people who you encounter and you kind of feel that everyone should go through this process of of seeing things from a different point of view and and almost like i don't know if it was conflict training or what it is but you know it would be really great if everybody went through this process but i think for me what has been especially important is that i can feel that i'm not thinking in that way that i'm not assuming a single position because for so many years that was what i did being part of a cult um and that shows to me how how much I've moved beyond that way of thinking and that way of seeing the world, which is very myopic and very simplistic and very understandable why some people need that. But I had to go beyond that. Yeah, that's really interesting as well, because that, yeah, the, 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 the psychological need in you to not be, not take that role actually then dictates your ability to write this very sort of multifaceted book and and again, yeah. So your yeah, your your psychology is on the page, isn't it? Your psychology is 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 dictating the form in which this book comes to life. And I think that that is absolutely key. I wonder so, yeah. how yeah how important that was to you as well. That when you're trying to kind of break these intergenerational cycles, that for you it was really important to kind of not go down that road as well. I think so. And also being on the outside of the cult. So I think that was also another important aspect was that and it, it's something that throughout my childhood, I always felt like an outsider, you know, I was on the periphery. And when I'd visit my dad in the communes, I always wanted to be a part of what he was involved with. I wanted to be like the other kids. I wanted to wear red. I wanted to have a mala. I wanted to have a different name because I wanted to be loved by him and i wanted to be accepted mm -hmm. by him and i wanted to be in his world 
but actually as I've grown older and again through the process of this I mean I didn't you know carry on wanting to be part of that cult but I but I certainly identified through the process of writing this book I identified that that emotion that I felt of being an outsider and realized also that I was still sort of adopting that to a certain degree um and now I see the strength of standing on the outside because I am able to write about it truthfully. I think a lot of the um, the kids who grew up in the communes um, find it very difficult to be able to objectify their experience because they still feel a lot of loyalty and it's so ingrained in them. Um, but also absolutely that, that, you know, my dad's experience was so extremely different from mine that I, you know, from mine growing up with my mum and, you know, I would dip into his world and then I would go back to the, the sort of straight normal world of, of home and school in, in North London, that it, it definitely gives me that capacity to be able to, 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 Go, go into, you know, to, to fluidly sort of move mm -hmm. between those worlds, which of course is, has manifested, manifested itself in this memoir, which kind of fluidly moves between my world and my father's mm -hmm. world and, and our combined world. So yeah, it's, it's nice to think that that, that sort of, you know, that, 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 that part of my personality that perhaps was quite difficult for me growing up has actually become quite a productive, mm. helpful thing in, in writing the book. I think it's really funny how these things that, that kind of plague us um, become the things that turn us into writers. I think there's always some kind of um, problem that we're trying to solve or some feeling of separateness um, that that kind of drives you to the page because when where else are you going to work something out? How else are you going to get someone to listen to you other than writing it down and mm. feeling that you can kind of explore that? I know that I... I was the I was the cult kid. I was the one on the inside, um, but I was still outside. So I was outside the normal world and used to watch the normal world acutely, um, almost for like cues as to how to behave. And then when I was a teenager, mm. I I made sure that people at school didn't know that I was, or I thought I successfully hoodwinked them. I don't think I did, but I tried to make sure that they didn't know that I wasn't normal. So I spent a lot of time being part of their world and then having to come back and switch and so it's the same thing that the more you're trying to be part of different worlds or desire to be part of the more actually you're not really fully inhabiting either which mm. maybe serves as well when it comes to going into the past and really not necessarily engaging with the present too yeah i think so and also just standing on the outside i mean you know that that was that's really the the history of my whole life was standing on the outside even you know in in my my kind of gangs of friends who were all like me and and going through you know my sort of 20s and club life and you know whatever work life whatever i was I was doing i always stood on the periphery i was always slightly observing and not fully present and and I, I don't know, maybe that's something about being a writer, maybe that's something about needing to kind of, I don't know what that is. I mean, is that something that you felt growing up? Is that something that you, yeah. yeah, I still feel it. I think that I'm actually scared of losing that feeling because I think that that is what makes me, not necessarily what makes me write, but what makes me be able to see enough to write so that I can notice mm. like 
the absurdity of it all because life is just completely absurd and mm. and we never really say it to each other we find these ways of making it look like it's not so you go to the pub or you go dancing or you, you know you you find these common points of reference that you can kind of all partake in collectively which I suppose is also religion isn't it that you find these moments that make you look like you're all complying and and everyone's finding it easy when Mm. actually I've just always found it really really odd (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's right no I absolutely and there are so many parallels as well as you say going out party and going to the pub standing in a in a some sort of kind of ceremony you know religious ceremony it is that need to to unify isn't it it's that need to be a part of a crowd and it's interesting also that you say that even though you were a part of that growing up and that was your world you also were not really a part of it I mean did you did you feel that you were kind of on the periphery of of that cult as well even though you were looking out at the real world yeah so they have very strict it's very hierarchical and so to get kind of to advance in it you need to have a male figure in your household because the males become elders and they become you know venerated members of the community and my mom was a single mom and it was always very much made that oh you kind of had to help the single moms you had to feel a little bit sorry for them that helping them was kind of your act of service as well so it made other families look better so I never felt fully um, accepted or fully integrated I always felt like we were almost in quite a perilous position within it that we were kind of at the sides I never felt completely inside it but also my grandparents were Church of Scotland so they weren't part of it and the rest of mom's family weren't either so I think that I very fortunately it was having that kind of multiple outlooks that helped but so I was very aware of inside the family we were kind of outsiders because of mom's beliefs so we couldn't Mm. partake in Christmas or Mother's Day or any of the things that were big family occasions um but I was also aware that the family were outside this thing that we were inside so there was like constantly these kind of binaries playing off each other um so yeah I did I felt very much like an observer for a lot Mm. of the time that I was kind of watching it and I think that that was hugely useful to when it came to writing it because I could just go back into scenes and observe them as I had when I was little and just put that down on the page in a very kind of plaintive childish voice so there wasn't um reflection or there wasn't context there's none there isn't really any of that happening in the book there is just the present happening for the reader Mm. to kind of deduce what they want to deduce from that as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's really interesting yeah and and of course you know you're able to go back to those moments because they were so important to you you know they were so full of important at that time so they stick in your memory. Whereas I worry now with my life, you know, where I've, I've got to a point where I'm really happy and, you know, busy and I'm not dwelling on things like I used to when I was unhappy, that actually, where is my material? You know, it's like days pass and I, and I have no memory of them. So because I'm so present in the moment, mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of observing. Um, 
and I think that's where you decide that you know it may be quite useful to, to write a diary for instance mm -hmm. so that you are capturing those times and they don't disappear on you because you know our lives are our material particularly mm -hmm. if we carry on writing non-fiction or or a type of memoir you know we need to to mine our lives still so that's that's kind of a, a tricky question i think with with the next book is is can you can you find that thing that matters so much that you feel compelled to write about it like you did with with the last book yeah it is really tricky i've started to write just not so much a diary but just like little points of things that stand out from the day so that i'm just kind of like flash points that mm. i'm capturing that i think well i can go back to that but I think very strangely so when I started the last days there was like my my family are very complicated <laughs> this uh, my whole family's made of complicated people and that really kind of acted on my mother that whole complication and um, and now I can kind of completely see what she was doing with um joining the religion but what I did when I sat down to plot the last days is I planned um three books drawing out different aspects of my family so my dad um was taken out of the last days he's at the very beginning and he doesn't feature in the rest of it because he left um my mom when i was very small and moved on to his next family and his next family and his next family this is a repeating pattern in his life that he um deliberately kind of hoodwinked women in a very distinct way to so that he could get children and then move on to the next because he believed he had to have 15 children to repopulate the world so i think there's definitely um something in that story that could certainly be made into another book and what i'm working on just now is a different element of my family um is kind of but most of the women in my family ended up in asylums historically for different reasons and not always because they were mad so i've kind of used that as a framing device to hang the second idea on yeah amazing so i think that i'm quite content with being happy now and not necessarily always observing things just that kind of like bone crushing tiredness and busyness of motherhood i'm fine with that because i'm like well if, if these three books work then I, I just want to go and write something else after that, I think. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we were also going to talk a little bit about the very muddy area of ethics when it comes to writing other people's um, stories into your own story. How did you um, deal with that? Or how have you dealt with the um, the kind of fear that arises and the emotional side of it um i think it's a it's a it's a work in progress i would say um i think that there are various stages to this process which and you can't really predict what's going to come <laughs> is the way i would say it i i suppose i'm i I'm not somebody so I, I know i know from teaching memoir that a lot of people feel very um blocked by the fear of writing about people who are close to them and to the point that they just can't write about stuff and i and i understand that and sympathize with that and i think it's a really difficult place to be um, i always encourage my students to write not thinking that this will be out in the world and to write mm -hmm. for, 
you know, personally and privately and, and, and therefore write honestly, whatever that takes and to deal with the exposure part of it later. Um, because I also believe that there are ways of exposing, there are ways of not exposing through writing about people that we love, you know, there are ways of protecting them through the process of writing or the, or the way that you've written it. Um, so, and again, this kind of feeds into that whole literary memoir thing that, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's quite a lot in a mission, for instance, you can hint at things, you can mm -hmm. imply, you can imply, you don't need to put somebody's bare bones of privacy on, on the page. Mm -hmm. um, but also I, I'm lucky because I am in a family of writers. So my father was a writer, my mother was a biographer. Um, she's still a writer. My brother is a, a, a publisher and an agent. Um, and so, and I've always written. And so, and I've always written, even though I was writing fiction, it was always inspired by true life. Uh, mm -hmm. So my, my family are quite, quite kind of accustomed with me sort of digging up dirt. Um, and, uh, so I was able to, to invite the, the, the people who matter to me, which is my mom and my brother, you know, my father's not alive anymore, um, into the process of, of, of writing this book. Certainly my mother, my brother found it harder, but he always accepted that it was something I needed to do. Mm. Um, but so I would say there's the process of writing a book. And of course you need to check in with yourself always that you're okay with the material that you're putting out there but also check in with those people that matter to you um send them the book before it gets published so that they have the opportunity to read it um whether they choose to or not is up to them but then you've got the whole process of being published and i think that that again it sort of throws up a whole nother load of questions and um i had this re recently where i was interviewed by somebody for one of the broadsheets and she was asking me quite personal questions about my marriage and my ex-marriage and um and i was quite taken aback and but sort of realized that actually it was her job she was being mm. paid to write her own narrative about my life about mm. our about our meeting you know to to create a new narrative mm -hmm. from the interview and that was interesting because of course when you put your work out there you are giving it up to the world mm. and you have no control over how people are going to interpret it so they will bring their own lives and their own stories to their interpretation and they will make assumptions about you they will think that they know you they will you know particularly if you're writing memoir they'll they'll feel that they've had some they might feel they've had some sort of intimate moment mm. of of knowing a part of your life and of course coming back to the literary memoir sort of thing and why I think it's so important is that we have created a story from our life. It is as aspects of our life. It is, it comes from a place of truth. Of course, it's a memoir, but it also is something that is separate from us. And there is mm -hmm. part of a process, I think, of having it published, which, and it's good that it has this massive kind of lead time of you know a year to 18 months because there is a process of giving it up we you know it's almost like having a baby you have to expel it from your system give it up and i remember jen ashworth um saying that every book that she's written when she's had it published it for her it's died it's 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 gone mm -hmm. and i i think 
of course it, it 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 needs to live on in other people's imagination and it lives on in us because we created it but there is also an aspect of of which i think is healthy mm-hmm. of us of us having to detach ourselves from it and mm-hmm. and move on um yeah I think that's absolutely right. And it happens, well, for me, it happens at various stages. I very much would tell people the same thing that you said earlier, that when you're first writing the book, just think that no one will ever read it. Um, I had to, I went through a phase when I had to write it in the dark, like it had to be nighttime. I think maybe it felt more confessional or it felt like I wasn't actually doing it. It was probably the fact that I felt like I wasn't doing it and I could pretend in the daytime that I wasn't doing this terrible thing. Um, and that really helped be able to kind of get the first drafts down so that I had something to work with and could kind of figure out the rest of the structure, but very much feeling no one will read this. And then when I um, sent it out to my agent, um, and he wasn't my agent at the time, I sent it out and thought, well, he's definitely going to say no. And then obviously the next problem of, well, actually he said yes. But I feel that there's various stages in publication which really help you relinquish the feeling of it being only yours and really help with the um, certainty that it is going to become, it's become its own thing. It's become its own thing with its own momentum, this story that is your... Um, degree kind of shows your relationship with the truth and a story that is very much your attempt to to do something becomes other people's and it becomes other people's at different stages so I felt that when I signed my contract I felt that I had very literally sold the right to the book and suddenly there was the right that my editor would say well I feel that we should do this and we should do that and then there would be conversations but at that stage that begins to become somebody else's and then I very much felt that as well when it went up for pre-sale and I read the Amazon um, page and it was suddenly someone who had read my book very cleverly interpreting the book and reading it in a different way and now I'm going through the whole publicity stage and my publicist has her interpretation of the book and and it's actually lovely I'm really enjoying that kind of giving up the control of this narrative that was my own and is now someone else's Um, I was very careful when I wrote the book that and again this comes back to the idea of literary memoir it wasn't just a series of events and it's not my whole life although it covers a broad time period it's distinct parts of my life to tell a story and I was very careful that what I included were things that I would eventually though I didn't feel comfortable writing them and had a very visceral reaction to writing them I knew they would be things that I could eventually talk about and when you were saying earlier that it becomes um, this different thing this thing that you can stand apart from that's such an interesting observation because we were reading together last week and I read again from the book this week and I feel like I'm reading a book. Mm. I don't feel when I'm reading it like I'm reading my life. And I'm able to read it very objectively. These passages that I know are really affecting people, I can just read and can do it. Mm. Mm. And I think that's because it's a, it's a different thing. And it is also no longer my thing. You give it over to the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and and as you say, you're in contract with a publisher, it also belongs to them, you know, mm. so there there is a lot of different 
kind of yeah helpful processes involved with that very helpful so i saw that you had said today that you have started writing something new are you still writing from life yeah so i i'm really keen to write another memoir and it, it's sort of you know not not mostly to break the um the, the sort of uh, the idea that actually you've only got one memoir in you it's oh, <laughs> not the, it's not the only reason i want to write another one but i do i really like this idea of of kind of you know come coming up with a series of of uh, ideas that come from life so it's it's not that i'm writing about intensely about my life without looking outside of my life um mm. i think that that would be quite challenging but i've got an idea yeah definitely that that it springs from 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 an experience that i've had it's it's a kind of follow-on from this book mm. um and and also just it's so nice to be creating something new actually mm. and i was teaching yesterday my undergraduates at bar spa and I, I so having kind of re-entered it just one morning, I just decided I was going to write a scene. And having done that, it was starting to, to come alive in my mind. I was thinking about it. And, and as I was driving to teach these students yesterday, I just thought, actually, I'm going to do what I did with this book, my, with Sins of My Father, which is just about to be published, which, which at, at an early stage of writing this book, I just wrote little vignettes of memory. And a lot of them came from photographs. Mm. And it was my way of, of kind of re-entering that world. And, and actually the finished draft became, I mean, it, it, it isn't a patchwork of all these separate sort of vignettes, but it certainly, it, it, it grew out of a patchwork of a mixture of essays and vignettes and memories and lots of separate things that I had, had written over the years, which, I find a really nice way of working because it keeps you writing, even if you don't know quite where you're writing mm. to, you haven't found that the plot, you haven't found the structure yet. So rather than sort of feel completely overwhelmed and like, oh my God, I've got to write a proposal and I don't even know what this book's about. Um, I think I'm just going to commit to writing again. And, mm. and that's a really lovely feeling actually to, to sort of enter into that world again. It's such a freeing way to work as well. I was, funnily enough, I was speaking to Charmaine Wilkerson, who wrote Black Cake, which is fiction, a brilliant book, much recommended, but she used a very similar process that you're talking about, that she didn't know the whole story, but that she just kind of could see these very strong images, mm. um, which are almost, I suppose, like internal photographs and she, these images would come to her and she'd think right that one and then mm. she wouldn't know where they all sat but the whole book is very short chapters very kind of vignette and very beautiful to read because we're chopping between scenes and going into different places and she spoke about time in a way that I found so fascinating she spoke about time almost as being a wheel that you can go back and forward in between and I mm. think we can often be so attached to these linear narratives that it can be very hard to shift or we're very attached and constantly fed the idea as well that you should plan everything to the nth degree and mm. I can't do it I can't plan without kind of pre-writing so I need to pre-write things to be able to write 
the thing or to be able to plan the thing the plan sort of comes for me in the middle of the process so I've written a proposal but I had to do so much writing and vignettes and all this kind of just really nice stuff to be able Mm. to get to that stage and um and it was the same with the last days as well so I think there is that that you need to kind of over time get confidence in yourself as to what kind of writer you are if you're winging it to get to the story or or how you're going to do it definitely and I think probably personal narrative or you know this this sort of life narrative definitely needs to be written out of the system in a way because written out in order to find the story because life shifts and changes and you shift and change as you write it and Mm -hmm. so I find it very challenging to think that I would know the answer to something before I have written at least some of it you know because it, it's it's such an unknown mm-hmm. um so I yeah absolutely I think it's I, I think I think writing definitely dictates where it wants to go I think mm. it's it's sort of and that's part of the magic of it isn't it is giving up to that process because mm-hmm. writing is the way of finding the answer I often find if I don't know what I think about a thing which is most of the time then I write about the thing and then I'll find that I think something that I didn't even know I thought it'd be yeah. something quite surprising it's not kind of what I thought so I can reason things out on the page in a way that I can't reason things out inside my head I need that kind of external I get that yeah yeah it's a really funny thing but I find that I love this idea that you're talking about that you know you're going back to talk about life again and to explore something and I always kind of feel I don't know if you feel like this that one book gives birth to the next book that books work in tandem um Mm that you feel like I feel with the first book, that there's things that I wanted to explore that I haven't explored enough. And the reader won't know I've not done that because they don't know what I wanted to do, but that there's this certain satisfaction with the book, but there's also a deep dissatisfaction with, oh, I wanted to do this and I haven't done that bit. And mm-hmm. and I don't know if it works like that for you. Well, it, it does, but I think that's what that's what keeps your momentum up, isn't it? I mean, I remember my supervisor, Julia Bell, because I, I wrote this book, Sins of My Father, on my PhD. Um, so she she was there beside me for, for much of it. Um, I remember her saying, because it was a different beast at the beginning, and I remember her saying, no, Lily, you've got two books in here. You know, let's mm. chop, chop out all this bit and let's just focus on this bit. And I was mm. like, oh, really? I don't want to give up that bit. But actually, I've still got all that bit. And, and that will form some of this next book so you know I think that there there are also those structural decisions that you make in in the writing of of any book where you think okay am I taking on too much here I Mm. I can't I you know how can I narrow my field how can I narrow my lens and that can be really helpful because also then it's still alive it still Mm -hmm. has all this potential to be something other which you can then Mm. feed into the next book so and just another thing I just was thinking about when you were talking just then is, is that your relationship with your reader also gives you a huge kind of indication of, of where to go next because of the way that the reader will respond to your work. So neither of us have our books out there yet, but when we do, we're bound to get feedback. You know, we'll have readers writing reviews or writing to us even and saying, you know, this is 
I want to know more about this or mm. this, this really resonated with me. And, and I think that that also can be a, a real sort of, um, you know, a, a kind of sign or a, or, a, or a help, a helpful thing for us when we're thinking about the next book. So I don't want to, I don't want to rush this next one. I want, I want it to live and breathe through the process of having sins of my mm. father out there so that it is part of a conversation mm. with that book you know, and part of a conversation with my readers as well. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely, it's good not to rush these things because mm. they, they definitely take time. That's a really beautiful way of looking at it, that it becomes, you know, a conversation, but it becomes um, a thing that sort of multiple things informing it, different people as well and the readers. Yeah. I've been really surprised um, when I've been reading uh by the response, by the amount of people who had things to say, but not just about the book, that people are telling me about their lives all of a sudden. And I don't yeah. know if that's part of memoir, that people feel, well, you've been really honest with them. So they come and they, they tell you things. And it's not just mm. necessarily things about being in a religion, but it's things about their family and things about how they felt as a child. And, and it just suddenly feels like this massive privilege as well. And I didn't even think about that happening. Mm, yeah absolutely and, and a, a privilege and a responsibility huge yeah it really <laughs> is it's very funny um and there is there's so much less I think in a book than you realize when you set out to write a book which is why the lens has to be constantly focused and and resharpened but what I found is that a lot of what I have taken out so at one stage the book was 120,000 words it was very chunky or flabby depending what way you want to look at it and it's now maybe I think it's about 85,000 so a lot's come out mm. um, I kept it all and so I suddenly realized that some of what I've got is the kind of conversations around the book as well so things that I can use to pitch into essays things that I can write yeah. about in a different way but they don't necessarily belong in the book but they still very much kind of prop it up and are the kind of supports for underneath it, mm. um, which has been interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I, I did do, I did go through that whole thing of having essays published before this book came out, and some of those essays then were translated or fed into. Um, so, I, I do. I'm, I'm a real believer in in doing that to a certain degree, and I think it's great if you do have stuff that hasn't actually gone into the book that you can then use because it can also be publicity material it can be essays that you write around the publication as well mm -hmm. i think that nothing in writing is ever lost because it's, it's all um moving towards the next piece of writing or moving towards even changing how you think so that that changes and informs how you can write and the tone that the next book is going to be. I think that it's, it's all absolutely fascinating and it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you about memoir. Um, this has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, it's been great as well. I think we could carry on talking for, for hours and hours. I think we could. <laughs> we could probably make like the longest episode in history and everyone else would probably not be half as fascinated. But I think that that's also the beauty of it. If you don't love your medium and if you don't love your genre and what you're doing and if you aren't kind of constantly trying to do something else with it, then... Are you doing the right things? The yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
yeah well all the best it's you're just about a month away from publication is that right a month a month and one day <laughs> counting oh well good luck with everything Th thank you and you too it's very exciting i'm very excited to to read your book as well when it when when it's near a publication it's great oh, thank you very much thank you thank you You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow. And please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast. <laughs>